This episode is brought to you by Osprey. Tired of your tattered old climbing pack? It's time you met the Zealot from Osprey. Osprey was born at the foot of the Sierras and came of age in the ranges, deserts, and canyons around Cortez, Colorado. And ever since, they've been elevating adventure through innovative pack design along the way. When it comes to climbing, their Zealot series is purpose-built and athlete-tested with ballistic nylon to defy years of dirtbagging. Their Zealot 40 is a proper crag bag, made with the same attention to detail and carrying comfort that Osprey is known for. And their Zealot 30 is made for your days that take you from work to the gym, using dual compartments to keep your everyday carrying and climbing gear separate. The Zealot is available online at osprey.com or at your local retailer. Hey everyone, Tommy Caldwell here. You know, everyone, at least in the climbing world these days, is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And, you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days, they make unquestionably the most high-quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners, and really, they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is episode seven of season five, conversation with Greg Pettis. Greg is one of my oldest friends. I've known him since about 2000 when we met in Gunnison, Colorado. We were both attending what is now Western Colorado University. We've both kind of been writing and climbing and exploring the world together for this amount of time. And though our paths have uh, diverged at many times, um, they also always seem to come back together. But Greg, he contributed to the first couple climbing zines. He contributed to one of my zines before I even started the climbing zine. So he is that OG and he's always inspired me with his writing and his approach to life. He wrote this essay called Couch Surfing at 10,000 Feet as part of his, uh, I think it was a senior thesis or something like that. And it really got me to thinking about this lifestyle and um, analyzing it, critiquing it. But most of all, just kind of he pointed out that it's an expensive lifestyle where we also try to reduce our costs. That just fascinated me. And I think I've kind of been pondering it ever since. Um, I know we do question and analyze the climbing culture in the climbing zine. I think Devin Dabney has done a really good job for us with that in his essays, Greg has, has been that, that type of thinker too. That's like, all right, this is an amazing lifestyle. Um, how do we break it down? How do we look at it? And Greg is also not really an obsessive climber like a lot of us are, um, but climbing has played an important role in his life, as you'll see. Greg is also now, I think, really blossoming with his writing. Um, we'll, we'll leave some links in the show notes to his Substack. He's lived this incredibly interesting life, and um, for years I've been encouraging him to write and telling him to write a book. Uh, I'm sure I can be a little overbearing on that as I am with other people when they tell me they want to write a book or they really start to write. Um, But it's because I believe in them and I I really believe in Greg's writing 
and I hope you all enjoy this conversation. It was really fun to sit down with Greg and tell your ride at a campsite and just uh, let it flow. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter Board. The Kilter Board has innovative light-up holds, a progressive app with animated functions, climbs for all abilities, and two layouts to choose from with large international online communities for each. There are over 66,000 problems in the original Kilter Board layout, and the newer Homeboard layout comes with over 6,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos for motivation and beta, and even add your own videos to share with other users. The new map feature helps you find and connect to Kilter Boards nearest you. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help you get a Kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com and look for a link in our show notes. I'm sitting here with Greg Pettis. Good longtime friend and original contributor to the climbing zine. We're chilling in Telluride, Colorado at a beautiful campsite uh, up at Alta Lakes. And uh, we just did a presentation last night. Picked you up in Paonia. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> I still don't have a car myself. <laughs> Keeping it dirtbag. But you and I go back just about as, as far as any of my Colorado friends mm. I met you actually through a restaurant application, uh-huh. and we told this story last night, but it's worth telling again to all our podcast listeners, but we were, I was working at this place called Blue Iguana mm-hmm. in Gunnison, Colorado, mm. and I was just looking through the applications, and there was this application from this guy named Greg Pettis from Springfield, Illinois, who's into rock climbing in the Grateful Dead. <laughs> I'm like, this is the same application that I filled out, like, except I'm from Bloomington, Illinois. Uh-huh. It was like friendship at first sight, as mm-hmm. far as like reading what. And it was it's cool, so cool because usually when you when you see something like that, it doesn't like sync up. But like we really, I feel like you're a brother, and we've really synced up in life. Yeah. But it all started with this restaurant application. You were the, one of the first <clears throat> people that really got me to think. I think intellectually about rock climbing. Hmm. You wrote this like I don't know if it was a senior thesis or s- some sort of thesis. Yeah. It was called couch surfing at ten thousand feet. That's right. That's in, right. You brought something out that I think is is more commonly written about now, but like you wrote about it open almost in this like economic terms of like this is a really costly, expensive lifestyle that also operates on a, a cheap amount of money. <laughs> and so I just thank you that like you huh. you and I, I we were just talking about this before we turned the mics on that you don't remember a lot of that essay because it was twenty <laughs> plus years ago and a lot uh-huh. of stories ago as Great. the listener will hear you you've got like books and books of stories. And you were also an early part of the climbing zine. So it's just like you were you were part of this foundation of the zine. And you're not really necessarily, you're not an obsessive climber. Mm-hmm. 
you've been connected to climbing so long and you're, you're, I guess you're more of a snowboarder, more of a biker, more of a world traveler, but what, what still attracts you to climbing these days? Sure. Well, you know, I was talking to old Dave Chu last night, our, our good buddy at your, your talk there and tell you right about this and how like, I'm kind of, I think one of the articles I wrote for you back in the day was non-climbing climbers perspective on climbing something like that totally yeah and like volume one or volume two which if you got one of those copies you should hold on to it's a collector's <laughs> item but uh yeah i think that the whole idea of climbers are are, are, are really they hold a, a a unique view they're seeing things quite a bit differently than than most of us in the modern world have been conditioned to see things you know they're seeking something under the veil beyond the veil they're seeking a line that most of us don't tend to see because our educations haven't really afforded us the lens through which to see that way. I really gravitate towards people who who are are yearning for that different perspective and climbers always are, you know. So I'm myself seeking lines, you know, (laughs) in life, different lines, hard to climb lines, not necessarily in the vertical terrain, but there's a similar approach, a similar energy amongst climbers. And even to this day, you know, I live most of the year in Thailand, in Northern Thailand, and and a lot of my friends out there, even though I don't necessarily climb with them, you know, like my my good buddy, Josh Morris was um, part of the crew that was part of that Thai cave rescue and in his mind and the way he viewed that situation is just so fascinating to me you know even though I I don't see it that way there's a parallel to to what I generally do pursue in the world so I like to have a unique focus on our podcast and and a lot of that is focusing on writing and I like to encourage people to write where does your writing journey start does that start in Illinois or does it start in Colorado I don't know. It's interesting. Like, I feel like at this point, you know, so many stories merge together. It's hard to, to know what, where they begin, where they end. But I do feel, and I'm sure you, you also can resonate with some of this. For me, writing has kind of been this, this thing I just have to do. You know, there's a, a story in my head that if I don't get it out, it, 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 it hurts. It, it becomes like a kind of cancerous thing inside of me. And I've tried different vehicles for sharing through music, through teaching, through, you know, all, you know, snowboarding and different pursuits in the wilderness. But the act of writing is the one that, that seems to be, it's like an entity of sorts. And uh, I need to feed it. And uh, when did that begin? I can't remember a time when I wasn't writing. But I didn't really start sharing it publicly until... Yeah, university. Probably around the, the same time that, that, that what you were just referencing. that, that Couch surfing at 10,000 That's feet. the one. Yeah. I, I barely remember it, but that's the one, yeah. yeah. Well, you've always been a journaler, too. True. And I think that's almost an underrated part of writing, because um, I still journal to this day. Mm. Do you still, it was journaling, do you think that was part of the seeds of, of writing? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and, and even more so now, because now I'm, I'm really into ethnobotany and and plants and 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 you gotta write details you know you gotta have details so i'm into drawing and making things beautiful in the journal too which in the past i wasn't necessarily so interested in making it beautiful um but yeah you know journaling you gotta do it you gotta do it i think for me for a writer you know because we forget things you know so absolutely yeah i i think journaling is yeah still to this day such an important thing especially when you're going through a hard time just to kind of get mm. it out and then you look back and you're like wow I was like we were talking about relationships the other uh-huh. day it's just like 
so many relationships when when they end seem like the biggest thing in the world and then you look back you're like oh i all i now i remember is the lessons or whatever but right um yeah so you were writing you're writing for the college newspaper a little bit i mm-hmm. think both of us were caught up in being very idealistic like 21 year olds mm-hmm. And thank God we had like a college newspaper and even the Crested Butte News and the Gunnison Times would publish our editorials. Uh-huh. Like I'm sure <laughs> if we went back, we could really get a kick out of that. But um, <laughs> yep. it's, it's so interesting that our um, there was in that Gunnison County, early two, late 90s, early 2000s, there was just such a, a space for nurturing writers and that it was in a space before we were the last generation to go to college before social media. Like we'd barely even had cell phones in college. Mm-hmm. Only the people like selling drugs <laughs> had cell phones. Totally. You know? Yep. <laughs> we won't name any names. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we were like that last generation of writers who, um, and, and, and we can dive into the, how publishing is better now too. But like, yeah. it was really an old school way of, um, being nurtured by a community in in embracing writing, and I think Crested Butte, we obviously didn't win the battle or the war, but there was a battle for kind of like that soul of a funky little mountain town that probably started with George Sibley's yeah. writing and his cohorts and a lot of other names that. But I feel like George Sibley was one of our professors at, at college that really you know encouraged us to um, mm. to write, but. Um, Mm-hmm. There was a lot of passion in your writing and I feel like a lot of passion in my writing and I feel the same way about a story being inside me that I just have to write out. Yeah. That's how I feel about writing too. I don't I don't feel like it's the success from the writing that is the root of it. Like we we both want to have success and we both want to earn our living from writing, but it's just that burning and I'm sure an artist or a musician or mm-hmm. any sort of um any sort of artist has to feel something like that mm-hmm. in that being like the root of, um, of creating. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm reminded of so as you're talking, there's so many good authors, you know, um, a lot of them like to be anonymous. That's why they choose to live in the hills far behind Crested Butte. But so many of the good American writers have, have lived or passed through there that have been mentors to me over the years. Um, and including uh, the 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 creator of uh, the Vinatok Festival, you know, amazing writer, and she really kind of seeded in me that that recognition of of that 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 the need for humans to have myth, you know, and to to walk into a story and and be a part, kind of like the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell was all about, and uh, the writers in that community, and just you know the greater uh, mountain-centered recreational community at large there seems to be that tinge of of we're living into a mythology and writing really explores that and um you know uh, also on that note i remember marcy once telling me you know when i was actually quite depressed as we tend to be sometimes when you're pursuing things that aren't (laughs) fully accepted by that you get lonely and this and that right but she told me when i was really starting to open up to writing um that we're all given uh, a gift, an art to feed the muse in the world with. And if we don't begin to, to feed that and, and share it with the world, which in doing so it will keep us alive, then it will kill us. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's deep. Mm. In college, like I feel like we all dabbled in sports and then figured out what our sports were, mm. you know? I think, you know, talking about depression and stuff, I feel like there's a, and George Sibley actually noted that like, self-medicating on nature was how I got over my kind of like existential Mm -hmm. depression when I was younger. 
so we were all dabbling in all these different sports, but I think some of us, like for me with snowboarding or skiing, it just felt too risk. I never gravitated towards it or kayaking or even ice climbing. Yeah. Uh, once I saw an ice climb, like collapse and, and fall on someone, I was like, I think I'm good on this, sport. <laughs> uh, which all of our sports that we do are dangerous. But like, I feel like climbing was maybe something we got you in a little above your head at times. <laughs> and um, there's just a couple stories of like, you, I think we had an experience in El Dorado Canyon, but we had this experience on the South Six Shooter where we tried to climb the South Six Shooter with like eight of us, you know, we're uh-huh. like starting at noon on a short fall day. But we got you into this experience where I had led, I'd done an alternate 10 plus start that I never should have done. I should have done the five, six, but I'm like, oh, let's do this sick 10 plus crack. And you're like a solid five, eight climber at the time. So it's <laughs> like, this is on me. Like I, I fault myself for this, but I'm a 21 year old, 22 year old climber who, uh-huh. you know, you know just enough to get yourself in trouble. But you had got on the 10 plus, and um, the cam had walked in so far in the crack, and you couldn't unclip it. Right. And then my self rescue skills, my, I don't like smoke weed on route anymore. Uh-huh. But like, I mean, I still smoke weed. But like, we used to like puff tough at belays, and mm-hmm. like, I don't recommend that unless you're a certain type of mind. But I was so high at the belay and we're like, oh shit, how do we deal with the situation? Like Greg doesn't know what to do. And it was like, it took us, I think like 30 minutes to get to you and you're completely out of your comfort zone and you can't move. And like you were, I guess you and you were just like spiraling of like, I'm sure you're scared out of your mind when that happened. Um, Do you Mm. remember much about that or? I do. And I remember several instances like that. Yeah. (laughs) That that was pretty kind of the norm back in those days. I remember a similar situation up, I think, in uh, outside of Boulder. The one then Eldorado came. Yeah. 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 Gosh, that one was almost more scary for me because there were people like tourists down (laughs) below watching us taking pictures. Totally. Um, But no, you know, I think, uh, I mean, in hindsight, those, those moments kind of set you up to, to be in challenging situations. You know, it was kind of in hindsight, always quite, you know, maybe we didn't, we weren't on our best behavior, (laughs) but when in life are you, you know, I think, uh, one of the things that, that a lot of those experiences kind of set me up for, um, we're, we're delving more into this illusion of security that we, we kind of pretend we have in our culture anyway, that modernity really, you know, it's not real. You know, there's, of course you can be safe, you know, and, and we ought to, to do as much as we can, whether we're pursuing climbing or, or whatever we're pursuing. But at the end, you know, it's a miracle that we, we get to live here and now, and, uh, we're not ultimately that safe. And I think those, in some roundabout, odd way, those moments kind of made that crystallize for me and has helped me a lot in my life. So I guess in some strange way, thanks for that, Luke. Wow. Yeah, that's that's interesting to hear that perspective because um, I, I put that on me, and um, but I learned a lot out of that too. And I, I just remember at the end of both of the El Dorado and the South Six Shooter experience, you're like, you saved my life, man. I love you. <laughs> and it's like... I think that's that's truly what it's about with yeah. coming together. But like both of those experiences, like that was me being uh, a bit of a reckless, irresponsible climber, which <laughs> I think, especially with males in your young twenties, you know, they say your the male brain doesn't. I don't know what the neuroscience behind that is. Prefrontal, like, yeah, prefrontal like, cortex isn't fully developed. 
you know, we were given so much adventure, like especially going to Western State College, which is now Western Colorado University in Gunnison. It was just like whatever you wanted to do, yeah. it was, you could do it. You could even be a guide. Yeah. And I just like look back on that and I'm sure things are much structured now. I right. think in the early 2000s, that world was still being figured out, mm-hmm. but it was like, man, whatever we wanted to do, we could do. And looking back, you're like, yeah, you, you just have to be thankful we're still around. We're st- obviously we've, we've lost friends and we can talk about that later, mm-hmm. but like we did learn really good lessons. And I feel like after that, I don't think I got you to another one of those <laughs> situations, you know? Yeah. And, but um, I feel like you're really, a, even if you're not an avid climber, you're a climber at heart. And you actually understand, I think, climbing culture just as well as any other climber. Hmm. Yeah. What are your thoughts on how climbing has grown and like what you see, how much this has all grown? What is used to be a fringe activity has entered the mainstream. You know, we, we climbed in Thailand a couple of years ago and like you, you still have a connection to climbing. Like, what are, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, I mean, honestly, I find a, a lot of it a bit troubling, I think, and that extends to the whole outdoor recreational culture. I think there's a lot of just this kind of modern view that, that we always got to be bigger, go further. And I guess at some point, it, it, I do find it pretty disturbing, you know, honestly. I, I don't know exactly how to remedy that because, of course, there's a lot of benefit and you know, it's great that so many people are who otherwise wouldn't have access to the wilderness and the, the medicine that it, that it affords us and, and, and the, the education it gives us um, that's so important. But I think this kind of, it, it speaks to a, a bigger topic of, of modernity and uh, just the, the educational approach that, that we all have inherited, right? that can be found in whatever path we we pursue in life. But it it is troubling to see it in fringe cultures, right? In the counterculture, like you see what's happening with the Grateful Dead now. I love the Grateful Dead, but you see a Grateful Dead steal your face on everything now. It's a riddle, right? There's there's always a way to do it in a way that's probably not the best way to do it. And I think this recently going through Crested Butte and some of these old stomping grounds of ours, Everything is so commodified. And the approach to climbing, the approach to mountain biking, the approach to skiing, whatever it is, it's just so big that uh, I, recently I really got to explore, like, what's what's the repercussions on uh, elk migration, for example, in some of these parts? Because so many people are accessing the wilderness in ways that are pretty aggressive. How do you remedy that? I'm not sure, but... My first reaction is it is a little disturbing. It's it's quite different than how we used to approach wilderness when we didn't have gear. We didn't have anything. There was only maybe five to ten of us at a time. Now it's a, a big party and, and everyone's got money. So they've got big shiny equipment and all the things. And I'll push back on you like Greg mm-hmm. and I, the history of our conversations and our friendship is that we don't agree. Like, <laughs> usually like we're on the same path, but we don't agree. Right. That I think it's... In, in some ways, a lot better now. And, and I'm going to narrow in on, on climbing specifically. I think that we might romanticize our time period a lot. Mm. I do think there was less of us, which was better. But I think you look at it, it was heavily white male then too. Mm. Um, I mm. feel like it, at a minimum, there wasn't even that many women around. Like there was zero diversity, but there was like... <laughs> That's true. That's 13, real. <laughs> like 15 dudes for every... Like when I lived in J-Tree in the summer of 2006, that there just weren't women around. And now, you know, you go to locations and there's 
there's like more diversity in, in people that aren't white, but mm-hmm. there's also diversity in, in gender and, mm-hmm. and everything mm-hmm. like that. I hope what the climbing zine is, is I hope that, you know, like a 21 year old listening to this right now, like maybe I won't get my friend in over his or her head <laughs> um, on a 10 plus, you know? So <laughs> I, I really have a lot of respect and uh, enthusiasm for how people are getting into climbing and hopefully they have our experiences to draw upon. Mm. And I also think like we were talking about kind of off the air of, you know, I've been in therapy the last year and a half and like you've done a lot of exploration through meditation and Eastern philosophies and you're just a really, really deep thinker. But I don't know if, if that reflection of the go, 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 I feel like it's it's more there now. And like you see it in in some of the essays in the zine where Kyle Lindsay was writing about self-harm and climbing versus um, self-love. And like, I feel like when we started, I I do romanticize it. I do think it was amazing. I do think it's less of an environmental impact with less people. But I don't think the the maturation of the heart and the mind and all these aspects, I think that that part is maturing. So Mm -hmm. that's that's my pushback is I I do think in some ways climbing in a narrow specific is almost better than it, in a better place than it was 20 years ago. Mm, that's um, but great. I know you're talking about the larger picture of what's happened to these major mountain towns. People are getting priced out. You can't afford it. You can't find the free campsite. I see what you're saying, but my pushback is sure. I do think we are evolving and hopefully our information that we're putting on and passing on to the next 21 year old, hopefully they can be more mature and like, the pursuit because I feel like it made mm. me personally I was just like not dealing with my problems and just climbing and like enjoying those adrenaline highs and those experiences mm. and so and maybe that's just a personal thing is like I feel like I had a, a lot of issues in that time period too so awesome well yeah man I appreciate that you know being an adjacent dirtbag <laughs> climber um, I'm not as in the scene really uh, yeah. so it's nice to hear that as you're you're saying that I am thinking of you know one of my teachers who recently passed Thich Nhat Han. he uh, often shared a, a Zen koan that says um, no mud no lotus and uh, what that basically is referring to is yeah sometimes you really got to create a lot of uh, mud you know and so maybe by just thrusting everyone into the wilderness you know, by doing that with a lot of confusion and uncertainty and not knowing what we're doing. And it's chaotic at first. We don't really know what we're doing. But through that, when the challenges arise, we learn how to deal with that in increasingly better, more mature ways, right? So I think that's kind of what you're saying. And, and that's awesome to hear. And, and that's that's really touching. And I, 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 I don't, I'm not exposed to that. And so that's awesome to hear. I, I, I do see some of that in your writing, though. So I, I, that's really wonderful. I want to go back to um, us being in college, and we decided to take an international trip together. We have our dear friend Amber Hawkbine, like all the non-climber friends in my, my very <laughs> climber-centric. It's really good to have a few non-climber friends <laughs> talking <laughs> about balance and everything, but we had this friend, Amber Hawkbine, and she was our mom in college. Like we literally called her mom uh-huh. um, and she's a mom now. She's a, living up in the Denver area with her wonderful husband, Paul, and their awesome kids. She was working in Nicaragua to build concrete houses for very small, modest concrete houses for people that literally just didn't have a house. Mm-hmm. And we we're both two middle-class kids 
they you know were had could be able to afford to go to college and had all the you know the privilege in the world um, for middle class kids and we decided to take this trip i remember your dad like i didn't even know how to buy a plane ticket and your dad <laughs> was like your dad got us plane tickets uh-huh. and it was like the classic like 36 hours of travel where we were like, I think we set up a tent in the George Bush George airport. Bush airport. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and then we were just like so naive, but we got away with it. And like, <laughs> I've never seen a tent in the yeah, airport. Yeah, I don't think you could get away with that now. <laughs> no, totally not. I mean, that was, was that even pre, that was like barely post 9-11. Right. Um, I think it might have actually been right before. No, I think it was right after. Right after. Like two or three. Okay. Yeah. But anyways, we set up a tent in an airport and yeah, we just had that cheap flight where you like, you know, the, the one you'd never book now because you have to like sleep in the airport for the night, which makes it not worth it. Um, but shout out to your dad who who arranged that for us. And, and we <laughs> yeah, show dad. up in Costa Rica and I don't know. Yeah, we we have to get to Nicaragua and we are two. We don't speak any Spanish. Mm. We don't have any sense of international travel and we just get on a bus and we're just on a bus all day and then it gets dark and we just end up at the Costa Rica Nicaragua border. Yeah. And we're kind of freaked out. And totally like, freaked out. We it get was off sketchy. The bus. Yeah, and all these people want you like I'd never seen that for the lack of a better term third world nation or I don't even know if that term is still used but you know what I mean like where there are just hordes of poor people in places and they see you and they're like maybe we can get a dollar out of this person. Yeah, the and global south. Yeah, yeah. And so we are, we get off this bus in the middle of the night and we're freaked out. Mm -hmm. And someone like, it's like, you can stay in this room for $5. Yeah. And we stay in there. I just remember it was covered in spiders. It was right on the border. And we're just like, man, is this, are we going to get robbed? And like, it was so sketchy. And then we, we totally botched getting to Nicaragua. We like took a taxi. We should have took a bus. And Amber's like, I'm surprised you guys are still alive. But we get to there, and, and Amber's just like, I'm so happy you're here. You guys are idiots. <laughs> like, <laughs> And I also remember, like, hearing, like, Baby Got Back on the radio and, like, MC Hammer and being oddly comforted. Like, wow, the 90s are, like, still alive down here. And, like, the United States, like, permeates through the world, which, of course, we know that now. But I feel like, for me, the only way to truly get to know the United States was to leave it mm. and see this other world. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we're in this remote village in, in, in Nicaragua and we're building a modest concrete house. And it was, I just remember it being so fun. Yeah. And like, so eye opening that like, wow, these people are this poor, but they're still smiling. They arguably seem happier than some Americans. Mm. We both talk about that. Just the mood of a lot of Americans <laughs> kind of seems dismal a lot of times, yeah. but so we, we spent a week in Nicaragua, learned so much, and then we went down to Costa Rica. Mm. And I remember we did this like 16-mile hike in the middle of the night in Costa Rica. That's right, yeah. And we just had this long, like almost like Jack Kerouac, Neil Cassidy-like conversation. And all we had was Nutella to eat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I think I ran out of money, too. Uh-huh. I ran out of money, and you had to loan me $100. That's which right. Was, like a big deal at the time. <laughs> like a big deal. No credit cards. <laughs> like, yeah, like literally ran out of money in another country before any sort of debit or credit or anything. But I feel like that trip set us both on a, a life's course, but it really sent you in. What do you remember about that trip that really inspired you to live a life of international adventure? Because you have been to so many places and. Greg will write a book someday and I, I, I'm sure it's going to be amazing, but like what out of that experience inspired you to like live this life of international adventure? Well, so much. I think the the whole, you know, there's a certain energy that, that comes to us when we're 
you know, leaving familiarity, right? And, and stepping into the unknown and uncertainty. And, and uh, you know, granted, the world has changed so much since then. And it's harder and harder to find the experience that we were so fortunate to have. There weren't even that many internet cafes then. So you really had to surrender to a humanness that uh, goes beyond, you know, political identities, national identities, and in, in, in experiencing that kind of universal humanness, that humility that comes, like, you know, from what you were referencing there. When you, when you don't have much, and, and uh, coming from America, we, we sometimes think we don't have much, and a lot of us do struggle, but it's nothing like what, what you see in other corners of the world, right? And where we were there in Nicaragua, there's real poverty there. And yet there was a, a wealth of humanity. And that was the first time I was really exposed to that. And then also just the, the, the excitement of seeing something new, new landscapes, which is also something that I think attracts me to, you know, the climbing community too. We all share that beautiful, it's like seeing it, you know, now I'm a dad, you know, that feeling you get when you see something totally new, you know? And so seeing the, the, the ocean and the jungle and, and monkeys and, you know, and hearing new languages. It's just such a magical feeling and it humbles you and makes your, your view expand in necessary ways. And then just the, the real, we were serving other people, right? We were helping build homes in a war-torn area that it's gone through so much suffering. And there's always strings attached when you come from a big privileged country and think you're going to go serve when you don't know anything. We didn't, we weren't builders, you know? So since then, I've really kind of critiqued that experience in certain ways. But it also really was the seed for like, I want to live a life of service, you know, and I want to do it right. And, and that really was seeded there. You were actually a little more prepared. You had slightly more money, and you had uh, a discman. I just remember, <laughs> like, would you let me That's borrow right. a discman and, and listen Black to Black Delicious, dude? Oh, like, shout out to uh, the Gift of Gab, who we lost, um, I think, uh, a couple years ago. Mm. Um, one of the most underrated rappers of all time, mm. of all time. Did I tell you I saw him in Durango shortly before he passed? No, because you know he has diabetes, and he would always come to altitude and maybe struggle. Mm. And he killed it. He did that. Like, if you guys have never heard Gift of Gab, look him up and look up. He has a couple songs that is, is like the A to Z one. And then the, um, it's like the scientific, do you remember the name of that? Uh, I think it's like alphabetic calisthenics or something. Well, I think that's the A to Z okay, one. Okay, okay, okay. There's another one that he did about science. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, the beat is in my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to add it to the, uh, there's a hip hop and climbing playlist that we have on Spotify for the zine. But, he did that perfectly. Oh you man, know, like Chad, insert that one right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you were you were smart enough to bring a CD player. I just remember like the inspiration, like the break of the monotony of riding on buses and just like listening to the Gift to Gab that that Blackalicious best album, whatever it's called. It had like spoken word poetry, and I was just like, oh man, Greg's Greg's a little. You were even even then you were a little ahead of me on the <laughs> like being savvy about traveling. You need some you need some headphones, you know. <laughs> uh, now we're just sounding like old men because <laughs> like, it's pretty easy to just put your AirPods in, in your pocket and, and go on a trip. But yeah. um, disc man. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we went back to college. I remember you were the commencement speaker at your graduation. Oh yeah, yeah. And you gave a beautiful speech. You're all you're like a really not only are you a good writer, but you're also like a really good public speaker mm. yeah we both used Gunnison Valley as base camp mm-hmm. for a long time 
and that was our next step. And, and actually that was the second zine that I ever created. The first one was New Moonlight Dream Chasers. The second one was the Gunnison Valley's Pace Camp. And the third one was the Climbing Zine, which mm-hmm. was just supposed to be a one-off like these other ones were one-off. And, and this is where like my timeline in your life just gets very blurry because you're, you've had so many experiences like you've, you've, you've traveled the world so much, but um, was that a conscious thing for you to have a home base in, in Crested Butte, which was really a dirtbag paradise at the time. Um, you know, you rent out a house with a bunch of your buddies, you're only paying maybe 400 bucks, 300, 400 bucks rent uh, up until, you know, maybe when, when the big boom hit or whatever. What Was that conscious of you to have a, a home base camp and then also be seeing the world? Or is that just kind of how it ended up? You know, I, I don't think I've been consciously doing anything until my daughter was born, <laughs> which was just, what, three years ago? Yeah, yeah. It's all been a a serendipitous kind of free-flowing adventure, you know? Kind of, I don't know. I don't think anything was really that conscious. It was just like, you know, ever since I, I met you, I was like, oh, this guy's cool. Let's go out to Hartman Rocks. And then you and then you were, you were the first person I ever met who was like truly dirtbagging. And it clicked. And I was like, oh, this guy is like literally just living in the mountains. That's what's up. That's what I want to do. <laughs> Back used to be smelly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it's been like that the whole flow, man. So I, I can't really pinpoint why or how some of these things flowed together other than just, you know, not to sound sappy and cliche, but just following the heart, you know, the heart is like a muscle you have to train and I feel really blessed I've been around people who have recognized that and 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 helped facilitate the nourishing of certain conditions that make that heart muscle grow strong and I heed that call you know with uh, a vengeance you know and maybe with some uh suffering that com- comes along with that for sure you know and you know here I am 42 and I'm still broke as a joke you know there's there's a price to pay for that life but it's been a journey that's that's really blessed I believe your your writing is so good you just started in the Substack game and I, I do feel like um, you know I've just in the last five years I've been able to make my living as a writing and publisher and, and I truly wish the same thing for you what as a parent has made you more conscious because I would say I have to be very intentional about my structure of my life or I'm going to be miserable. So I feel like ever since I moved back to Gunnison in 2007 to be a writer um, after like a dark period living in Salt Lake City and being broke and um, living in a basement and being depressed. So I feel like I, I do have to have that conscious plan with my life. But like, how has that changed from being a dad? Like, how, do, how does being a dad make you have to maybe be more structured or more intentional about where you spend your time and how you spend it. Yeah, how has that changed you? Uh, enormously, you know. I think the the biggest thing is it's not about me anymore, you know. I mean, that's in a nutshell, that's the, the biggest game changer of all, which has transformed the way I, I write, the way I receive information, the way I walk through the world. Now I'm a teacher, essentially. And so, you know, teaching about ethnobotany and culture and, and, and different things, critiquing modernity, you know, this is what we just typically look at. And a lot of it was very intellectual, academic, you know, coming through with some highbrow coffee talk, you know, long chats with people, philosophizing in the coffee shop about how can we make a better world. And once you have a hard, solid thing to live for that depends on you showing up. It's not just intellectual anymore. 
and you don't have a whole lot of time for being waxing intellectual. You're just like, I got to get, I got to get the kid fed, mm-hmm. you know, and you start to see the parallels in how we walk through the world and everything we do. Like we got to keep the world alive. Like the, the climate, you know, uh, right now needs us to show up. We can't just like wax poetic about what's going on. We got to act. And I don't think that that was really activated in me until I had a kid, mm. you know? So that's the main thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super insightful. I don't, I don't have any, any children and, um, don't have that perspective of, I've seen it through like literally almost all of my close friends have kids now. And it's, it's really a beautiful thing. It's makes it harder to find climbing partners, <laughs> but actually a lot of people are more motivated yeah. with their three hours right. of, for climbing, you know, uh-huh. and, and we've had to be more intentional because you've lived in Paonia now for a few years and I would just stop and see you when I'm rolling back from Wyoming, a little haggard from the road. But with this trip, it's like, dude, we literally are going to hang out for 36 hours, but let's be intentional. We're like going to an event. We're going to go climb a mountain after this. We're doing a podcast. It's like where before, maybe we were just going to smoke some weed and <laughs> sit in the coffee shop and talk about climate change or something. Yeah, you yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I, I love that. I love that perspective. Um, so you, uh, like I said, you've just lived this almost like Forrest Gump-like life. Like, <laughs> you know, these like little things of, um, you said at one point you you spent some time in Hawaii and- um, yeah you what's the story with the Ram Dass because Ram Dass is such a fascinating character to me he was so heavily like low-key involved in the Timothy Leary he's not as I don't think he's as synonymous with LSD and the counterculture movement of the 60s as Timothy Leary but Ram Dass I think it's just as important and, and maybe was more like Timothy Leary seemed a bit wild and, sure. and like but Ram Dass there's something fascinating about him what was the story about you like ended up at his house or something in, in Hawaii? Yeah. 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 Right on. Yeah. Gosh, you're bringing up so many old stories. I, you know, I, 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 I beg the forgiveness of your listeners. If some of these stories mesh into each other and uh, aren't entirely accurate, I don't even know, but it's like one of my uh, good mentors, Martin Pricktel once said, you know, he said, uh, I guess this, his grandma told him this. Don't let the, <laughs> Well, don't don't let the uh, truth get in the way of a good story. So you know, which isn't to say this isn't accurate, but I just can't remember. So much has happened, but I'll try my best. Um, I guess that was around the time when you could actually make quite a bit of money trimming weed out in NorCal. I used to always go out there, you know, and fund my my travels. And it was after one of those trips. I uh, and there was no. It was a bad snow year in Crested Butte, and I was like, oh, I'm not going to Crested Butte. There's no snow. I broke up with my my girlfriend. And I had some money from trimming weed, and I was like, you know what? Um, I'm going to Hawaii. I had nothing, no money, nada. Ended up at the, I had just enough money to get there. No clue what I was going to do when I arrived. And I, uh, li- I hitchhiked from the airport. No clue in Maui, which, by the way, let's keep them in our prayers. It's definitely going through a lot, lot right now with the fires there. Uh, but I hitchhiked from the airport, got picked up by this uh, really amazing hippie very hawaiian bro you know surfer bro um and he he took me to his place we ended up going to a native american sweat lodge together Um, a lot of really interesting people there that i was really hitting it off with i was like wow this place is really trippy really interesting and and we hung out for a few days and he he was trying to learn how to to farm and i hadn't really farmed much at the time except for with actually with you because you had started some uh garden projects back in gunnison 
but this was kind of a a follow through to that and uh he was like i need help in my garden bro i should try to bring in this super zinned out kind of hey bro i don't really know who you are man but i like your vibe and i'm about to go to nepal and i need someone to stick around and watch my garden bro and uh he ended up letting me uh stay in his place and he went to nepal for like six months and i stayed in his place the whole time anyways i had no idea where i was hitchhiking around just trying to figure out what the scene was and uh, so I guess there's quite a few little interesting stories that that hint uh, that that lead to Ram Das here. But there was a yoga studio, and you you remember we were so into yoga back then. I still am, but yeah, but then so I was checking out the yoga studio, and I, I I was and I was hitchhiking back from the yoga studio once back to uh, the Hui where we were staying at. I was staying at Oh Ram Das. I couldn't believe it. I I recognized him because I was you know super Zen Dharma bum hippie. I knew who Ram Das was. And uh, I, I, I saw him in the this uh, van driving by, and a big old van, tons of room, and I hitchhike, I put my, my thumb out, and he drives right by me. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> unbelievable, Ram Das ain't going to pick up a brother. <laughs> anyway, so if you- needed some alone time. Huh? Yeah, I think so, I think so. Anyways, that's just kind of a funny side note. But then- used to hitchhike all the time. What's that? We also used to hitchhike all the time. All the time. Yeah, all the time. Everywhere, yeah. you know? So many of the stories are because of that, actually. Yeah. But anyway, so so this little community I was living in, which actually was the seed for many other events in life, because now I live primarily at a, at a uh, eco-village in Thailand. Um, but this was the first place I'd been in that kind of community, where there was like an intentional village, like people were trying to live differently, share resources, live live in a good way together. But it was a big community, and I didn't really even know... Uh, everyone that lived on this property because I was a bit shy and, and this sort of thing. You get in your groove, you know how it is. Uh, but one day, uh, one of the neighbors came over and was like, yeah, we're going to have a big uh, potluck over at our friend's house and we're going to sing some kirtan, which I never knew what kirtan was. I had no clue what that was. Um, eventually I found out it's chanting the names of God in the Sanskrit kind of Indian Hindu tradition, you know, Hare Krishna, these sorts of traditions that invoke the presence of the divine right but i had no idea what that was at the time i was just like oh cool i'll meet some people and we went over to the potluck and uh and there leading the kirtan was ram das (laughs) unbelievable incredible and so we ended up uh having kirtan with him every weekend the entire time i was there it was really really beautiful time and really seated in me a spiritual kind of interest that I carry to this day. What was the, didn't you smoke a joint with Willie Nelson during that time period? Too oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he used to have a, a bar. I'm trying to remember the name of it right now. I can't forget. He had this bar there in, uh, what was that town? Paia. Paia. And it burnt down, actually. I uh, do know Willie credits quitting drinking because he obviously smokes more than by anybody except Snoop Dogg. <laughs> He's but a pro. He does credit outliving his fellow rock stars because he quit drinking alcohol. So I wonder if that's symbolic that his bar burnt down. Yeah. 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 yeah well, he was, you know, Maui's a, I don't know what it's like now. I haven't been there in years, but like Crested Butte, all these cool towns, it was low key. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of cool, cool people that pass through there. Mm-hmm. Jack Johnson, Ben Harper, Damian Marley. Saw a lot of these these cool cats. They played tiny little shows around there, hang out. Really small, cool community. And yeah, one day on the beach, Willie was there. So we puffed a joint. <laughs> wow. 
any anything memorable from that? Or was just like Willie? Willie I think Willie. I was just a fanboy, yeah, you know, totally. in this elated yeah. moment. Like, wow, man, yeah. Willie Nelson, no way. Yeah. Yep. That and was I, a trip. I know whenever I meet someone, like when I met Tommy Caldwell or whatever, I was just like. The voice in my head is like, don't say anything stupid. Don't, right. don't be a fanboy. Uh-huh. And I think the cool thing about having interviewed Tommy on a podcast is you get a, a half an hour to kind of ask them every question you want to ask them. You almost get frozen when you meet someone <laughs> that's so big in your mind. Yeah, sure. Like, I can't believe I'm like sitting next to this person right now, but sure. So I was like, don't say anything stupid. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Know? I remember when we yeah. ran into Lynn Hill and, and oh, yeah. Telluride yeah. way back. What was She's that? So Mountain nice, film? Dude. Yeah, totally. That's a that's an interesting energy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Lynn Hill's all, she's honestly of all the like the famous climbers I've met. She's like the most approachable. Yeah. Kindest. Yeah. Down to earth. So is Tommy. But like cool. yeah, Lynn Hill is the best. Man. Cool. Cool. I want to interview her someday, too. Mm. I know you've had so many travels and adventures, but you have landed in Thailand. I think it's interesting that full circle from our adventure in 2002, 2003 to go to um, Costa Rica together that I live part of my year in Mexico. I'm also in a relationship with a Mexican woman. So we both have these like relationships with women from different cultures and everything. And and you just spend so much time in Thailand. You live on the the Pun Pun farm, is that what it's called? That's right, Pun Pun. Outside of Chiang Mai. Yep. Tell us a little bit about that and just like how you ended up in Thailand and how you met your wife and, and everything like that. Sure. Well, I guess that really was initiated by, you know, going back. The seeds of that was in Gunnison when I was living with our yoga teacher, right? Uh, Brenda Fleming. She really inspired me to travel to the East. As soon as I could, I I went to India and and Nepal and was just trying to explore as much as I could of, you know, that world, Tibetan Buddhism and yoga and and this and that. And honestly, I I went, I don't even know if you knew this, but I was going so deep into that, that I was was really starting to consider becoming a, a monk. Uh, that resonated with me a lot. But then incidentally, one time, not, not far from where the Dalai Lama currently resides there in Dharamsala, McLeod Ganj area in, in India, I was I was uh, having tea with uh, this cute girl that I kind of liked, and oh, we'd been hanging out a bit, and she uh, told me about where there be dragons, this international kind of experiential travel school. And it sounded really cool. Like they explored a lot of these themes that were really deeply resonating with me and, and, and seemed like a remedy to some of the kind of narrow-sighted view that our education offers. And it sounded really awesome. And it seemed like a way to pay for travel, <laughs> which was just like the, the main clincher, right? I was like, no way, you get paid for this? And so I was like, let's do this. She said, you should apply for this job. I did apply for that job and I got the job and I started working for them pretty much full time, going all over the place, New Zealand, Fiji, all throughout Nepal, all throughout China, Nicaragua, back to Nicaragua, Costa Rica, everywhere. Really cool opportunity. As it goes sometimes, like you're just flowing, not real, real, really thinking about anything. There were some themes that seemed to weave together all of these experiences. And these experiences went pretty deep. A lot of suffering in the world right now. You know, these are really rough times. The reoccurring kind of thread was a relationship to place, which I think really extends to some of our reoccurring dialogues about like, you know, this, this, this journey, this, this relationship we have with nature, with wilderness and place and community. So there was a deep intergenerational relationship with place that I saw everywhere I went that always went back to seeds and a need to have an awareness of plants, seeds, and our human relationship with that. And I never really explored that much. And that really stuck with me deeply um, and started to become more and more of an interest until one day we, we ended up in 
Thailand and we went to a seed saving center in northern Thailand that happened to also be like an intentional kind of community where they did homeschooling, unschooling, and incidentally natural building, permaculture, the whole thing. And it just seemed to kind of bring all of these stories together in one place. And that's where I met my wife. And she incidentally was wanting to be a nun at the time. (laughs) And so we had a lot to share we suddenly kind of realized, you know, we don't need to be monastics. Maybe we can be in this world and share in a, in a way that's more approachable. Wasn't one of your first experiences together during like a 10-day silent meditation or something? <laughs> yeah. Your first date was a 10-day that's right. silent meditation? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our first real date yeah. was uh, a 10-day Vipassana retreat in, in southern Thailand. And a day after that... I, I flew to do a trip, to lead a trip in uh, New Zealand for three months. And then I moved back to Crested Butte. So I didn't see her for another year. So our first date was in total silence and we weren't allowed to like be next to each other. <laughs> wow. wow, that is that is remarkable. <laughs> kind of crazy. Um, and Thailand has climbing. And I actually, I flew there to climb with you. And it was literally, I think, the hottest and sweatiest I've ever been. Yeah. What was that island called? Koyanoi? Uh, Noi. Yeah, um, that island with with good climbing, mm-hmm. and um, I was I was just like, wow, I got so worked. You guys have Crazy Horse, which has been open and closed, and I think that being in Thailand really opened my eyes to how good it is. I think in the United States, as far as consistency with areas being open, and it's always evolving of where you can't climb or, or where you can climb. But it, it made me very thankful because in Thailand, it seems like it's quite complicated with climbing, and it's it's relatively new and on a simple level, what uh, what do you what do you think about the climbing in Thailand? I think it's it's great, you know, and that's one of the cool things about adventure sports, you know. Like, uh, of course, one of the biggest challenges for me being in Thailand is is the the cultural barriers, the language, and and not only the language, you know. You think, oh, once I learn the language, then I'll be in, but no, there's all the nuances and subtleties of the view that you don't get just because you get the language, right? You got to be initiated into a new place that takes lifetimes, I think, (laughs) you know. But there's these things we can do as humans that really bring us together regardless, eating food together um, and playing, you know. And so one of the consistent opportunities for me to relate cross-culturally anywhere in the world has been through climbing or hiking or skiing anything like this is just so universally fun that the the it doesn't matter where you come from or what language you speak this is going to come full circle to the climbing zine and and why you're such an astute um observer of climbing is that you said you had this powerful climbing experience at raleigh after you had been um traveling through india and you accidentally end up in pakistan and then like you you discovered a strength and a joy that you wrote about so well. Uh, I think you, mm. it's hard to find a copy of volume one, but you could find that article for free on our website. But I think you, you captured the essence of climbing just as, as good as anyone ever has in the zine. Yeah, I was really sick. That that was a, that was a powerful trip, you know, speak, going back a bit to what we were chatting about. I think there's a need, a human need to be lost and uh, without a safety net. You know, and then we were we, we kind of came into the game at a time where that was a little more accessible. Now we have, you know, you know, there's there's so many safety nets around us. It's hard to get lost. But I was very lost on that trip, like physically and 
psychologically, spiritually, you know, I was kind of thrown into, you know, this initiatory space that I don't think modernity generally holds space for. But, you know, in the climbing life, there is, there, there's resonance of that there, which is, I think, one of the reasons I gravitate towards climbers too. Um, but this was kind of that journey for me. This was, you know, I, I was I was traveling through India solo and was very sick, very scared. In fact, I got separated from my my partner, who Mark Cammy. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mark Cammy was my travel partner, and and he and and we are so different, and it was the perfect combination. Anyway, that's a whole nother tale. But uh, God bless Mark. He saved me, and he recognized that I was very sick and kind of tinkering you know and uh i was i was very in this kind of spiritual hippie kind of mode and he wanted to climb um and i was like well hold on hold on let's go to this thing the kumbh mela which was i don't know if you've ever heard of it it's the largest gathering of humans in the world it happens like every 12 years in india on the banks of the ganges river Uh unbelievable and it just happened to be happening the same time that the dalai lama was given what's called the kala chakra this interesting initiation and i was just fascinated by it all i was like I gotta go, but I was like dying. And this actually is something seeded when we were trekking in Nepal before any of this happened. And I got amoebic dysentery, very bad. And then quite a few other things, but being a dirtbag backpacker, I didn't have any money to explore what was going on. I wanted to keep powering through and we kept powering through, but I kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And by the time we were finally in Bodh Gaya, which incidentally, just on a side note for anyone interested, is where the Buddha, uh, uh, gave his first teachings and, and, and attained enlightenment. Interesting place. But so we uh, were there at this big teaching with the Dalai Lama. And, uh, you know, as dirtbags, we had no plans. We showed up with no clue what we were going to do, not really knowing that there were going to literally be millions of people there. <laughs> and we ended up, you know, befriending some Babaji, some Hindu, like, guru teacher who was so nice. He let us stay in, like, his daughter's room, kicked his daughters out, and we were guilty because of that. You know, all sorts of emotions that you get in these weird situations where people are overwhelmingly generous, right? Which I think you and I experienced in Nicaragua, right? Um, anyways, at that point, Mark, bless his heart, he, he was like, Greg, you are really, really fucking sick. Like, you have to take care of yourself. And he had been to Thailand before, which is a pretty clean place. It's not like India. India is very dirty. It's, 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 it's very poor. It's, 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 it's uh, not structured. It's, it's chaos. It's hard to stay healthy there. Almost anyone I know who's spent time there has gotten very sick. Um, and he was like, listen, I know of a place in southern Thailand where it, it's paradise, and you're going get, to get healthy there. And it was Tonsai. This was before it got really developed. And, uh, and it freaking was. And luckily, he took care of that whole th- situation really beautifully. Um, kind of. God, if we, if we had time, I'd tell you the whole story. <laughs> it gets, of course, there's always bumps in the road. Um, but Life is messy. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually, we wound up together in uh, Tonsai. And it was magical. It was a hugely powerful time for me. And uh, really made me start realizing how important health is and how a relationship with with uh, plants and, and just a nurturing kind of approach to life is so necessary. Because there it was just, you know, Thailand is a very health-centered place. Like people, it's just filled with traditional medicine and, and massage and, and all of that culture was right there merged with the climbing community. And so we'd climb all day and we'd eat fresh food 
all day and just bathe in the sun and have really mindful conversations because that that culture there is very interested in mindful conversation. And it really kind of, well, A, it made me fall in love with climbing again. Maybe connected to what you had mentioned earlier because of hanging out with you guys and we, getting we into trauma. too many traumatic. We all had traumatic yeah. experiences, but we, <laughs> a lot of us put ourselves through that. And I actually put you through trauma. Yeah, 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 yeah. truly. Yeah. You know, I don't think I've really uh, seen it that way, but it probably was a bit traumatic because I, I lost interest in climbing and I didn't climb for years, really. Um, but when I went there, I loved it. And I was just so stoked. I mean, I mean, I remember myself waking up before anyone and, and waking people up. Let's go. So psyched to climb. That feeling you get when you do it every day and you're in a groove and you get better and you can see yourself getting stronger. Um, and in some ways, I feel like that's the only place that really, I really caught that essence. Because I was. With you, I was always in over my head. But there I was in a groove that I could follow and I, I was learning and, and getting better. There was one climb I would kind of practice every day and I got better and I finally did it, you know, it's such a cool feeling. It's cool to remember that. A lot of times we just teach our other friends to climb and then we almost, you see this with like boyfriend, girlfriends a lot where the stereotypical bro is just like, come on, just do it. I literally saw this guy in rifle a few weeks ago, just belittling his girlfriend. Like you could do this, just put your foot here, put your foot there. What the fuck are you doing? Oh, yeah. you know? because I was a young person and, and didn't fully know the grasp of how important it is to let people have their own journey in climbing. But I think that that's a really good like lesson in here of just like you, you could almost ruin in, in relationships or anything. If you force things too much or whatever, you can mm. almost ruin what is a good thing for someone or, or like someone who tries mushrooms for the first time and trips too hard and has a bad <laughs> trip or whatever. And, and where mushrooms can be a beautiful thing, you know? Yeah it's so cool that you were able to discover that joy that I was trying to show you, <laughs> but I was just doing it in, in the wrong way. And, and, and I think the final note I want to close on here is something you were saying about you hang out with a lot of like intellectual, uh, these long conversations. Um, and I, I think there needs to be more people like you that are thinking about seeds that are writing about climate change and all these environmental things. I think that it's it's awesome that so many more young people are are interested in that but i think there needs to be more of that in the world mixed with our like bro like getting our climbing fix and that's that's it you know i feel yeah. like there really needs to be almost like what exists between the two of us is like there needs to be more of that i think in climbing culture and just to let everyone have their own experience in climbing and and try to be like let everyone have their own if you're teaching someone to climb like let them have their own their own journey in it and I'm mm. so glad that like you you were able to find that and you're you're still finding joy in climbing even if you're just adjacent on the culture climbing is just one important piece of the whole puzzle of like living uh an outdoor centric spiritual um existence you know so yeah well said well said yeah and as as my daughter you know ages she's she's going to be 4 soon I think there's a real likelihood I'll be delving back into the world the vertical realms yeah, and just keeping things safe for her and letting her have her experience. But let's go, uh, let's go climb a mountain. Yes, sir. Let's do it. Huh. That was my conversation with my brother, Greg Pettis. You can find a link in our show notes to Greg's writing on Substack. You can also search his name there. Um, he also inspired me to um, set up a Substack. I'm going to check it out for a month or so, make some posts, and see 
if I have time to kind of incorporate into my writing and publishing routine, initially I was against it, but um, it, it does seem like a really cool format and Greg's crushing it on there. So definitely follow him. Um, if you found any of this interesting, you can find more of my writing and other Climbing Zine contributors writing at climbingzine.com. Something I, I really never say at the end of this that I notice other podcasts do, but um, you can rate and review uh, this podcast on Spotify or iTunes or any of the other algorithms or providers, whatever you want to call them. But I think that does help. And I, I do know, you know, we've got a lot of five stars on, on Spotify and different things like that, but I figured I'd throw it out there because um, it seems to help. We are also still in the midst of our Keep the Zine Alive campaign. We pushed above 300 trying to get to 2000 by the end of the year. So we got a long way to go. Um, but check for the link in our show notes or head on over to our store. Uh, you can just Google climbing zine store, subscribe. It's like 30 bucks a year plus shipping. And, um, it's the best way to keep this thing going because we want to keep going in print with the climbing zine. Music for this episode is by Devin Dabney. We got our microdose mixtape coming soon with our friend, Chris Hampton of power company climbing. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. And signing off from beautiful Durango, Colorado, I'm Luke Mihal. Peace.